Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out all the very many things that we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we've got another fantastic episode of Gear 30 for you. We are talking about a new binding technology, a new Alpine binding technology. And first of all, that doesn't really come around all that often. And it's not just that we are seeing new developments in Alpine bindings. Uh, This isn't just new and different. I think it's really compelling. Joining me today is Andrew Cooperthwaite, who is the Vice President of Winter Sports for Head Tyrolia, and our topic is the Tyrolia Protector Bindings that are currently available in several different iterations. So, what's so special about these protector bindings? Well, they implement a function called Full Heel Release. And in this conversation, Andrew and I are going to really dive into the details of this FHR function. And to accompany this conversation, we have a link in the show notes of this episode to a really nice video that Tyrolia has put out that shows exactly how this full heel release function works. And it doesn't quite look like anything else you've seen on an Alpine binding, I would say. So definitely check out that link in the show notes of this episode, and then listen up and listen carefully, because I think an interesting case is being made for this system. And as always, we just want you to have the best information possible to inform your purchasing decisions and to help you figure out what gear is going to work best for whatever it is you are up to and trying to go do. Now, before we dive in, I want to remind you that the pre-order of our biggest winter buyer's guide ever is now live, and so we will include a link to our 23-24 winter buyer's guide in the show notes of this episode. You can also find it on our website, blisterreview.com. But what you should do is pre-order the guide now, or you can become a Blister member or a Blister Plus member to receive a copy of the guide for free that's included in your membership. But with this pre-order, you will get the best price on the guide and the best shipping rates on the guide right now. So check it out. We've got over 300 skis in this buyer's guide. The book is coming together nicely. And there's lots of real cool pictures of Kara Williard and Sexy Luke and Dylan Wood and Justin Bob and Paul Forward and then little old me in there. So, you know, just maybe some bonus stuff, I guess. But in addition to all that, you're going to get some of the best, most succinct analysis of a bunch of ski gear and snowboard gear and split boards. So check that out. The pre-order is live. Links are in the show notes, or you will easily find it on the homepage of our website. And now, let's talk about new Alpine binding tech. 
with Andrew Cooperthwaite. Here we go. Well, Andrew, great to see you. Um, let's just get into it because we got a lot of interesting stuff to get to get through today. Um, tell me about this protector technology and what problem is this new technology trying to solve? Well, that's that's a great question, and that's really. When when we discuss protector technology, I mean this is this is the conversation that that began the product development cycle. Um, when you look at at injuries in, in winter sports and in in particular alpine skiing, uh, about thirty four percent of all reported injuries center around the knee. Um, when you look at the majority of ski bindings in the market, those bindings are not designed to protect the knee. And this is this is what a lot of the skiing public doesn't understand. So if you buy, I would say anywhere from ninety to ninety five percent of the bindings from any major binding manufacturer, and you pull out that customer information and you look at that information, you will find details in there that specify that this product, this alpine ski binding, is designed to protect the lower leg and not the knee in particular, because when we talk about standard vertical release in the heel, then the knee doesn't become part of the equation. You can't really start to look at how to protect and safeguard the knee until you can evoke a lateral release from the binding. So let's back up for just a second, and I'm going to see if you can describe for us how I'll, I'm going to lump them together here, um, but how a traditional binding, traditional alpine binding, handles release. Right. So the the first thing that we need to understand, Jonathan, is when we talk about knee injuries, it knee is really focused around the heel of the binding. The heel of the binding is what can affect your ability to prevent a knee injury. 90% of, of bindings out there in the heel reverse in a standard vertical release. Uh, many of our Tyrolia bindings release that way. If you ski on an attack binding, that is a standard vertical release. If you've ever skied on, let's say, our Super Shape ski with a package binding that comes on there from Head Tyrolia, that is called a PRD binding. And that's a power rail diagonal. The D, the diagonal, refers to the heel releasing in a 150 degree uh, spectrum. So it can't release pure lateral release, but it can at an angle, it can release and help you prevent injury in a forward twisting fall. Unfortunately, forward twisting falls don't really add to knee injuries. And they're not the most common type of fall. But when we develop that, that, uh, technology a few decades ago, that was the best that we could get to. And that is predicated off of the binding releasing in a 150 degree spectrum in the heel. So it can't get to that pure lateral release, but it has to be at a slight angle. Hence the ability to protect you in a forward twisting fall, but not a backward twisting fall. Now, when you look at protector, we can evoke a 180 degree complete 
uh, release spectrum, including a bilateral lateral release, a pure lateral release at the heel. So most bindings, like, like I started the conversation with, release in a purely vertical sense. And that vertical sense can help protect your lower leg, your tibia and fibia, but that vertical release cannot affect the knee. So along comes this protector technology. Yeah. How does it work? Well, the, the first thing that you need to know is it's targeting the most common fall in skiing, especially the most common fall that has the most severe consequences to the knee. And that is the backward twisting fall. There are various forms of the backward twisting fall. There's uh, a fall that's called the phantom foot. There is a fall that's called the slip catch. Um, there is a fall that's called the dynamic snowplow. All of those, in effect, have a backward twisting element to it, but they all have various position differences um, that you can find throughout skiing. Um, so when we talk about those falls, the, the heel has to have a lateral release mechanism to it to protect the knee in those. And, and those falls most commonly are leaning your 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 backwards your 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 center of of gravity or mass is moving backwards you create a, a fulcrum effect with the top of your your ski boot you know certainly where that boot sits in relation to your lower leg and in relation to the knee can create a fulcrum and obviously your knee has the ability to have movement within it whether it's the, the femur moving forward, backwards, or laterally to the medial side or the lateral side. That's why we have a PCL, an MCL, an LCL, and obviously the biggest one, an ACL. So when we're talking about those ligaments, that backward twisting fall is what puts those ligaments in the most jeopardy. Now, when you have a lateral release mechanism in the heel, it in the backward twisting fall, the toe piece is important, but it's not nearly as important as the heel piece. And hence, when you look at our protector line of bindings, you'll see that it is in our uh, RX toe, which has a full 180 release uh, spectrum. So it can release bilaterally as well as vertically, but we can also put it in our attack toe which interestingly enough, horizontal spring placement toes don't have the ability to release vertically. So that vertical release is not important to the heel and a lateral release mechanism protecting the knee, hmm. if that makes sense. It's I mean, all based around the heel. Yeah. First of all, we need to go back to the three types of backward twisting falls. I want to see, mm -hmm. I want to hear you give a description of the three types. So let's start with I want to see this is like a test. <laughs> well, it's it's uh, I'm going to need to reference some notes here. Okay, um, but you know, a, a, a phantom foot and and the slip catch are are, are very similar. Um, a, a phantom foot is is what I would position a lot of beginners go through. And that is just getting nervous about moving down the hill. Mm -hmm. And and the natural tendency when we first start skiing, whether you're a kid or you're an adult, is to not position your body weight forward, but do the exact opposite. And you go, wait a minute, my body's not supposed to 
to take gravity and go down the fall line. I should move back and avoid this ability for me to go down the fall line. That, once again, puts, uh, puts pressure against the top of the boot cuff and also is, is trying to leverage your toe up and your heel out. So it causes this ability for you to leverage your knee in an unfavorable way. Uh, you'll see a lot of injuries like this with beginners and with their intermediates because they're, 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 the body tendency is to not move forward, but to move back. Slip catch is, is when, you know, when you're, when you're making that turn, you're sliding that turn in a beginner or intermediate phase. Or one of the situations that happened to me years ago was I tried to stop and the ski slides and then it catches and it catches inadvertently and you make a move backwards in that catch. And that's where the slip catch. So the ski is slipping, then it's catching. And it's catching the body off guard and the movement goes backwards again. And, and hence you injure that knee dynamic snowplow. I would position more to racers also to uh, freestyle athletes and big mountain athletes. And, and if you've ever watched, let, let's say a, a downhill event and those men and women are subjecting themselves to speeds of 70 to 80 to 90. I mean, Johan Clary hit 100 miles an hour in a, in a downhill course. Crazy to even conceptualize. But when you watch those individuals go off of a, a jump, um, if they get backwards, and you've seen some of the best skiers in the world do this, if they get back, if their center of gravity is not moving forward, and, and when you get, when you, catch air going 70 miles an hour, all forces are working against you to push you back. But so if, if those forces push me as a, as an individual racer back in the air and I land nine times out of 10, I will land. My body weight will go backwards and my knees will come in. And that is that dynamic snowplow. So now I'm snowplowing at 65, 70 miles an hour, which is not a good situation for anyone to be in. You can also see it when freestyle athletes land back on a big, big, big jump, a big air jump. Um, and you see them get out of position. They land back. Whenever they land back, the knees usually come together. And you get, if you freeze the frame of maybe a split second after they've landed, they're in that dynamic snowplow position. So those are usually the three types of, of situations that cause that knee injury. Andrew, my brain works in mysterious ways. And a couple key things that I want to share with you from these descriptions. First of all, I want to name a run or a line at Crested Butte, Phantom Foot. I, I'm like, I can't believe that's not already a thing. And secondly, now till the end of time, if anybody asks like what my skier style is, or if I have to fill out some form somewhere, dynamic snowplow, that's it. There you go. That's there a, you go. So I'm excited about this. Um, so it's like a three plus on the, on the, on the chart. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I don't know the number associated with it, but dynamic snowplow sounds both badass and sometimes kind of accurate. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, and, and if, if, if we ever talk about personal situations, I can evoke a, a, an interesting story towards a dynamic snowplow. I, I have a hunch we might end our conversation today with sure. this, this story because yeah. I'm dying to hear it. Um, 
Okay. That was super helpful. And I think we'll paint a nice picture for people like, all right, what, what are we talking about here? And should I care about this? And it's like any person who's ever been on skis who's like, oh, I've never been in a situation where I find myself more backseat than I need to be. It's like, well, one, you're a liar or, uh, or, yeah. or you're... Happens on a daily basis to yeah. the best skiers. Yeah. Yes. Um, so now let's get back to the nuts and bolts of of this protector technology and mm -hmm. really what this looks like. Uh, you know, so start painting that picture. So when you talk about the protector technology, it's, it's based upon the peel of the binding having two distinct movements. The first is seven millimeters of bilateral travel. So if you look at the protector heel, and, and you go into your local ski shop, a lot of, a lot of the shops will have our demo tool on the wall. And we use real low, low spring tensions that you could never use in a, in a skiing situation, but it allows you to manipulate the binding with your hand. And what you'll find is that the heel piece or, or the heel platform of the binding, I should say, not the heel piece itself, not the turntable heel cup that your boot sits in, but the platform that the brake and the boot heel sit onto that platform has the ability to split and to move bilaterally in seven millimeters of travel bilateral bilaterally meaning that it can move to the inside as well as to the outside so the key point there is we don't create a left and right ski so you no matter which binding you put on which mm -hmm. foot it doesn't matter the the binding has the ability to be move seven millimeters to the lateral aspect and or to the medial aspect and seven millimeters to the lateral aspect, both in and out. That makes for a couple of interesting situations. Uh, to use a term that the, the bike industry uses a lot, it creates some compliance in the heel piece. And if if you ever tip a ski up, and that heel is locked in position, you're going to feel more of the nuances that you're skiing over. With that seven millimeters of, of travel or compliance in a performance aspect, and we've noticed this through a lot of on-snow tests, you get a smoother feel from the protector binding because it's eating up those little nuances that the terrain that you're skiing over is creating. Now, what's also extremely important when you talk about seven millimeters of bilateral travel is return to center. And our mechanism is designed to the utmost of always, if you get off center a little bit, if you evoke a millimeter or two of travel to the inside or the outside, the number one premise of that binding within your release values in that seven millimeters of travel is to get you back to center as quickly as, as possible. So there's a performance attribute to that seven millimeters of travel. It's allowing for a little compliance over all of those nuances that you ski over. All of, you know, when we ski, we're, we're very dynamic. You're in a dynamic position as a skier, but you're also moving over terrain. No turn is exactly the same in skiing. Even on a completely groomed surface, you're always entering different forces and, and creating different nuances and vibrations within your skiing. That seven millimeters of travel can absorb some of those nuances and give you an exceptionally smooth and damp feel to the carve. 
Now, when we talk about releasing and using that seven millimeters of travel, you have to fully extend that seven millimeters of travel. And in doing that, you're going to max out the release values of, of the binding. When that seven millimeters of travel is hit and you've maxed out that release value, that's when 30 degrees of rotation in the heel cup is enabled. And that finishes that pure lateral release. So the seven millimeters of travel is not going to evoke a pure lateral release until that 30 degrees of rotation in the heel piece, the heel cup that your boot is actually fixed into. When that 30 degrees of rotation is affected and, and, and maximized, that is when you find a pure lateral release to the heel. So let's talk about this seven millimeters. So why seven? Why not five? Why not nine? I mean, is this where the engineers just kind of landed on this? Or does this, you know, because I we're talking about a lot of nuance here and a mm -hmm. lot of like, well, I think I think it's first of all, I think you're doing a really good job on sort of explaining clearly what's happening with the system. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious just to ask about if it was like if different amounts of this seven millimeters of travel were tried and it's like eh, turns out we want a little more leeway here right uh, i i'm tempted to use the phrase margin of error except exactly, it's, yeah. but it's not error it's just called skiing right like there's movement we know that's part it, of it so i guess the question is how much is too much movement too much margin and how much is too little yeah, it, it, I wouldn't say it's a margin of error. It's 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 capturing that moment in time, mm -hmm. and and in movement that these these movements need to be maximized. So a better way to explain this is in conjunction with ski binding manufacturers, a machine that is different than what your ski shops have. So when when we talk about having your bindings mechanically tested, let's say by a Vermont calibrator, by a Wintersteiger Skitronic, or by a Montana Jetbond, um, some of those names might have elevated by now to different names. But um, as, as a whole, these are the three most common testing devices. None of those devices can replicate a backwards twisting fall. But there is a device that we have at Tyrolia that most major binding manufacturers have and that Tuve has that does replicate a, a uh, backward twisting fall. And it's a really interesting uh, device. If you go on YouTube and look up the protector binding, you can see this device on our informational videos uh, created by our, our, uh, our folks and our colleagues over in Tyrolia. The, bind, the, the ski is literally hung in the air and there are different forces that are put on the ski. And that, to your point and your question, Jonathan, that seven millimeters of travel has been distinctly analyzed in, in association with the 30 degrees of rotation to maximize the release of the binding at a particular point. And they can gauge this by this particular machine of when, when is the knee put in the most jeopardy by replicating these forces. And the forces are put particularly on the tail of the ski and mimicking a leg and boot in the binding so that they can go ahead and gather when this data is specifically 
hitting that knee and when that release point needs to exist. So that seven millimeters and that 30 degrees are all very specific to the results and the data of this particular machine. Or I, I should say testing device. It's not necessarily a machine as much as it is a t- testing device. Man, this stuff is so fascinating. I'm, you know, we were talking a bit and we might as well move to this topic now, but you and I were kind of having that conversation of like, when it comes to bindings, we still are just on this spectrum of release, questions of release and retention, right? Bindings got to do these two things. Ideally, they keep you in exactly when and for as long as you want to be kept in and they release exactly at the most opportune time to avoid injury. And man, you just think about all the different types of skiers out there, all the different types of things that various people do on skis, whether it's downhill ski racing, whether it's skiing the steepest, gnarliest, you fall, you die lines out there, whether it is a new skier on a very mellow slope, starting to just feel his or her way around a mountain, all these different things. But eventually we're back into this question and this formula of, well, let's make a thing that is effectively good at keeping us in retaining Mm -hmm. us when we want to be and releasing when it should to prevent injury right i'm glad i i say this a lot about ski boots like i'm glad i don't design ski boots but this conversation is also making me glad that i don't design bindings either um so let's i don't know take a minute to to sort of on this release versus retention spectrum of things let's just talk about I think you've done a good job of explaining how the mechanisms work in the protector mm-hmm. technology on the release elements. Can we talk about the retention side of thing or how potential buyers should think about the retention? Like, is the protector system doing anything new or different mm-hmm. on the retention side? Or is that just not where the focus of this technology is? Yeah. I mean, to, to, to your point specifically in what you just described, the first thing you'll read about any alpine binding, no matter what manufacturer you're talking about, the first thing that you will read in the warnings is this binding cannot release in all situations. Mm-hmm. And that's because, to your point, there's no way to predict yeah. all the forces that can be created by fixing your foot and your leg to this huge lever arm. That is a ski, mm-hmm. and and that's that's something that that we you you try as a binding manufacturer to take in as many hypotheticals as you possibly can, but there's no way to predict every situation, and that's why all the warnings lead with that because there's no way that I can as a binding manufacturer tell exactly what you're going to do on the mountain at all times under your guidance and outside of your guidance because. As we all know, when we're skiing, there are certain times that we are not in control of what's happening outside forces, everything that's going on. Um, so, yeah, release and retention. I mean, that's what a binding is, is, is built off of. That's the basis. And as skiers um, and as you get more aggressive in your skiing, one of the things that you have to do as a skier is decide what your priorities are. How much release do you want? 
in relation to how much retention do yep. you want. For an example, people that are skiing Big Mountain, Alaska lines, yep. people that are skiing in the park and pipe, they might position themselves to a binding that wants to retain them more than release them so that they have the ability to complete that line or complete that trick or a downhill skier in a, in a very choppy area of the course. If you ever look at slow motion of, of a downhill skier, the forces that that ski is going through at 80 miles an hour is really unlike anything else in, in sports. There is so much going on. That ski has got so much movement in trying to purchase the snow. So those individuals are going to move more towards retention. The average skier is going to want to balance. They want to enjoy themselves, but they also want to stay as safe as they possibly can can. So when we look at the DIN chart that, that is, that is, you know, put together by ASTM, um, that DIN chart is taking into consideration your level of skiing as well as your height, weight, age, and skier, or as well as your height, weight, age, and I, I always want to say skier type, but I already said that level of skiing being in retail and rental, I've, I've been trained to just spit those things out. Um, but, but that is taking into those into consideration, those situations and trying to put you in a position that will allow your binding to not only retain you, but to release you in a safe, as safe manner as possible. Um, when we look at the protector binding in conjunction with release and retention, there is a, an interesting aspect to the protector binding that you don't find in any other lateral release binding. And that is, we have three adjustments in the, in the standard protector binding. There's the toe din adjustment and the heel din adjustment. So that is controlled by you, the din chart and your ski technician will look at it. They'll put in all of your data and they'll come up with a number. So let's say, Jonathan, you're set at an eight. So we set your toe din at an eight. Then we set your heel din at an eight. Then there's a third adjustment mechanism on the protector binding, and that is the lateral release. So our lateral release is built off of spring tension, just like the heel and the toe release mechanisms are. They're not DIN adjustments, so they don't need to be recorded by the uh, technician. But if you read the ASTM guidelines with the DIN chart, we always recommend that the toe and the heel are set the same. Now, different people can request different things, and usually the ski shop will have them sign an additional release that says you have chosen to set your toe different than your heel. But we always recommend that the toe and the heel are set the same. We do the third, we do the same with the third mechanism in that lateral release mechanism. So if I if I look on the chart and you're at an eight, I am going to set that third additional mechanical adjustment, which is the lateral heel release mechanism to an eight as well. Hypothetically, if, if you were to take your binding and say, I've got my toe and heel set as, as eight, but I'm going to set my lateral release mechanism to an 11. Mm -hmm. Well, you've basically just removed that lateral release mechanism yeah. because it's not going to, it's not going to correlate with the heel release and therefore, you're going to basically block the ability for that lateral release mechanism to come into play. If you're at an eight din in the heel and the toe and you set it to a five, you're probably going to have some pre-releasing of that lateral heel mechanism. And the protector binding is the only lateral release heel binding that is taking that lateral 
release mechanism into consideration from a tension of spring standpoint, therefore giving you a much more precise evaluation of release and retention at those release value settings and moments where you're maximizing those those values and need to release from the binding. So that that is a really important point in that seven millimeters of travel and retaining the skier and having a uh, consistent return to center. That's the other thing that we need to talk about. With seven millimeters of lateral travel, our binding is constantly trying to get you back into that center point of the ski if it's not fully releasing you. And, and that lateral adjustment and mechanism allows us to shadow what the toe and the heel are doing with the same type of forces. So I am certain that there are some people listening to this conversation and they're thinking, I've heard a bit before about a binding that's supposed to be better for knees. Uh, in fact, mm -hmm. it's called the knee binding. So mm -hmm. can you talk a bit about that knee binding and how similar or what the dissimilarities are between it and this protector system? Right. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and they're, they, they were the first to really bring lateral release to the mass market. Um, the, the knee binding is, is based off of, uh, the heel, just like our binding is. But what they do is they mimic what goes on in the toe piece with the heel piece in that there is a heel AFD anti-friction device. Um, and then the heel itself, the heel cup itself can rotate. So the, the lateral movement that goes on in that binding in particular is based off of that AFD plus the rotation of the heel piece. Uh, where we're different is we're not using an AFD mechanism per se in the heel. We're splitting the platform and allowing for full seven millimeters of travel. And that's where performance and safety come into play with the protector versus, versus the knee binding. We can go ahead and have elastic travel in that lateral mechanism with the seven millimeters of bilateral travel. Plus, we can evoke return to center. And that's that's one of the key aspects there. So it, it's, it's different in the uh, release mechanism being more precise and being set to attention and being bilateral, where anyone that skis on a knee binding knows that you have to have a right ski and a left ski because the, the lateral release mechanism can only work to the lateral aspect or the outside aspect of releasing the boot. So there's some limitations there that, are, that our technology does not. We, we've been able to get by some of those limitations. By the way, a massive issue that seems to just be kind of a bigger and bigger issue is with all the different types of heels and soles and we're putting rubber on more soles and people are slamming their touring boots into alpine bindings and mm -hmm. i mean just creating frankly all kinds of havoc and we had a panel session at our last blister summit that kind of really i think did a important job of talking about this issue and getting people mm -hmm. to really think about what they're doing or the ways that they are compromising the performance of certain bindings when we're just slamming boots of all types of different 
with all types of different souls or souls that are chewed up, you know, more than a new boot. This is a huge variable. And I, as you're describing or talking about a knee binding with an AFD on a heel, that just got me thinking about how AFDs at the toe can get compromised if we're jamming boots with deeper rubber lugs on them and all this kind of thing. Yeah. Can you t- or, or debris in debris? between the binding and the boot yeah. Yeah, is, is another issue that comes into play. You know, it's, it, well, it's interesting, you know, the most common uh, types of, of soles that we're dealing in the Alpine market with right now is a traditional Alpine and a grip walk. Sole. Mm-hmm. The good news there is the heel doesn't change at all, yeah. varying from an Alpine to a grip walk. Certainly when you get into touring, and true touring soles, that changes slightly and the profiles of those heels can change, especially if they don't. The, the, other, the other aspect to, to these norms or these ISO norms that we talk about, whether it's Alpine, whether it's grip walk or whether it's touring, I shouldn't even say grip walk, it's walking sole or touring. Um, there are a number of boots that don't apply to any of those norms that are outside all norms and and a lot of consumers aren't aware of that um and that has an effect on the interface between the boot and the binding um but when you when you talk about alpine and grip walk in particular you're going to see a lot of different materials used especially in the grip walk soles a lot of times we're using uh vibram or other rubbers in conjunction with the sole to create a a, a softer heel toe strike there is within din specifications there are certain thicknesses that all of those materials have to meet to be din certified and and any major manufacturer is going to follow those. So that can somewhat be taken out of the equation because we have to follow those isodin standards in material density and thicknesses and so on. Um, but to your point, I think probably the most important is wear and tear. One of the best things that you can do as a skier to protect yourself against injury is to Keep an eye on your toe and heel and how much that toe and heel is wearing, whether it's an alpine sole or whether it's a grip walk sole. As an alpine skier, that's one of the most important things you can do. Have your bindings release checked every season, pay for a mechanical test on it, and be aware of what's going on with your toe and heel. If you're a skier that walks long distances from your car to the lift or from your your condo to the lift keep that in mind um, because no toe and heel can can absorb 10 miles of walking you know it's 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 going to wear down and that's why they're replaceable but certainly when you wear past a certain point and that certain point is those din standards then you put yourself into jeopardy and that binding cannot it cannot achieve what it's designed to do if the toe and the heel is compromised. Um, the other thing that's really important as a skier is to make sure that you're removing as much debris from the sole of your boot in the toe and the heel as you can, whether you're hitting that with your pole or you're scraping it on your binding. All of those are extremely important. Um, when it comes to compatibility, it's, it's, this is an issue that the industry as a whole is, is trying to take on. Mm-hmm. Um, and all manufacturers of bindings have come together and it's in our best interest to make this as simple for the consumer as we possibly can. So starting in the last year, you will find that the bindings are labeled consistently no matter what 
manufacturer you're using. So an adult boot sole has a big A uh, on the toe that that is uh, that is considering it an adult versus a child boot sole. Uh, a, a, a binding that is just for children will have a C located up by the AFD, no matter what the manufacturer. Grip walk logos are consistent throughout the binding industry so that the uh, consumer can see what specifically applies, what bindings specifically apply to grip walk. Um, so it's the, the, if you look in and you go to your, your local ski shop and talk to a, a certified technician, they can run through these. And what we've done as an industry is tried to make this as simple as possible and agreed to use the same nomenclature on all of our bindings so that one is not varying from the other. Cause when we first went down the walking sole, uh, tunnel in in product development there were three different variations and that made it extremely confusing uh for the consumer so we've tried to consolidate that everyone's bought into one type of walking sole and that essentially is grip walk we're all using it um, whether it's on the boot or in the binding so to try and make this as simple for the consumer as possible i want to talk about another binding um again for skiers out there who have been, you know, concerned about knee issues and the like, there are a number of skiers who uh, are big fans of the look pivot. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a question of how well I think it's understood what a pivot brings to the table. Uh, but I know this is a binding you know quite well. And so I'd mm -hmm. love to have you talk a bit about the look pivot versus what's going on with a Tyrolia protector binding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean the the look pivot, you know, the the look of the binding and and the the technology name that's been there for for decades, a turntable heel. You know, when you when you read turntable heel, a lot of people will assume that can mean a lateral release. Um, but if you look at the actual binding itself, and 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 the pivot's a great binding. Um, when you look at the binding itself, that turntable heel, yes, it can it can move in, in its highest level of, of uh, models that they have out there. But there are two arms that connect the heel piece to the platform of the binding itself. And those two arms, um, there's adjustment on there. It essentially cr uh, controls the pressure that is exerted on the heel lug um, that a lot of people would refer to as forward pressure. Um, those two arms that are adjustable lock that boot into place. So uh, uh, a, look, a look pivot, the difference between that and a protector is it cannot evoke a pure lateral release. What it does that's similar in performance to the protector is it allows for slight lateral compliance and slight lateral elasticity uh, in the boot and in the binding. Uh, the, the difference with with what we're doing in that lateral compliance is it's all moving towards a pure lateral release where with the look pivot it's it's more of of absorbing some some smaller shocks and and some smaller uh absorption of when the ski is put up on edge um but it is not evoking a lateral release as look will happily tell you it, it is a vertical release heel piece mm -hmm. so if we're back to thinking about I mean, you've kind of just spoken more to the releaseability, the differences there. 
Mm-hmm. But if we're on the retention front, um, I mean, we said earlier, like, not every binding is going to work exactly the same. There might be certain mm-hmm. cases where one binding performs better in a certain situation and worse in a mm-hmm. different situation because as you said at the top, like we don't, your binding manufacturers don't know what a skier is going to go do. Or there's an virtually infinite number of things or positions a skier can get into. So on the retention front, is there maybe something where you would say, if you're this type of skier, that pivot might actually help you, or there might be certain benefits on the retention side of things versus the protector? Yeah, I, I would I would say if you are more focused on retention and uh, releasing, uh, you know, better way to look at this is how old are you? <laughs> because this will usually answer the question. Um, when I was younger and I was skiing extremely aggressively, retention or releasing was not my number one objective. Yeah, um, retention was my number one objective, especially in consequential situations in the backcountry or in big mountain lines. Um, retention was was yeah. really what I was yeah. most after, you know, and that's why I skied on 18 din bindings and things like that. Um, so, you know, when you talk about elastic travel, elastic travel will usually, it, the greater the elastic travel, the longer that binding will hold you in the binding without releasing. Now, there's, there's a couple of results of greater elastic travel, or whether we're talking about it in the toe or in the heel. And elastic travel, the further that that boot can come off its center axis without releasing, will give you more time to recover, but conversely will give you greater exposure to injury. Now, one thing that should be paired with elastic travel, and when we talk about elastic travel in Tyrolia, we will never talk about elastic travel without talking about return to center. And we focus on there being a certain amount of elastic travel within the product, but with a robust return to center. It's okay through those nuances and those vibrations for the boot to get slightly off center without it releasing as long as we can get that boot immediately back to that centered position and get that skier in the optimal position to create that next, the forces for that next turn and that next carve or that next powder turn. So that's, that's the differences that, that you'll find there. And, and elastic travel can give you greater ability to recover, but that ability to, to have longer to recover certainly can expose you to risk mm-hmm. simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, you know, it's kind of a catch 22. Yeah. What, what, what is your ultimate goal? Yeah. And, and that's why I say age comes into play. Cause certainly now when I set my bindings, I'm thinking about my kids at home. I'm thinking about my career. I'm thinking about how this next situation could adversely affect me. And when I was 25, even 30 years old, I was thinking about retention. I don't want that thing to come off my foot. And I mean, I I actually really love this conversation because it's asking the skier to actually think about priorities, you know, and, you know, look, if, if you're a 20 something year old and you are filming your first segment in a ski film, or you are trying to win the free ride world tour, I'm sorry, but if you've been a competitive athlete, you're 
you know, like your priorities are different. And like, I'm, I'm with you these days. Like I am not trying to get injured. I've realized about myself. I hate being injured more than virtually anything on earth. Like, so priorities shift and people are allowed to have different priorities. And I, I like that any conversation really where we're asking people to think about what matters the most to you and are you willing to live with the, the pros and cons, you know, the risks and rewards in a different, different situation. That's what every skier does anyways. There's risks yeah. and rewards. And if we act like that's not a thing, uh, I, we're, we're not really being realistic um yeah yeah it, it's it's no different than say mountain biking or, or riding a motorcycle i mean what what you know to, to to get that feeling that these sports give you how much are you willing to risk to get that feeling and and how high do you need to elevate to get that adrenaline rush and that that feeling of freedom is balanced by your risk of injury you know, and it's, it's consequential in a lot of things that we do. I'm, I'm a skier that's been through nine knee surgeries, including a, a total knee replacement. I, I'm, I'm past that part of my life. Yeah. I, I don't want to have more surgeries than I have to. So, you know, my, my, I've, I've changed the way I look at, at myself in regards to ski equipment. And I know I'm not bulletproof and I know that uh, there's consequences and I'm, I'm willing to take those more into consideration now. Mm. Dear Lord, Andrew, you've had nine knee surgeries. Yeah. Yep. Do you know I've had zero? I'm, yeah, I'm knocking. I'm knocking on all good, the wood. Good on you. Knock, and, knock and, on that. And wood. you want? I I'm knocking again, but like I don't want my first. I really, really don't want my first. You know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So anyway, nine. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk a bit about the development of this protector technology. I mean, it was kind of news to me, actually. I, this started maybe around 2015-ish. Does that seem about right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the protector binding will hit its second year in existence on the market this year in 23-24. We launched the initial binding in 22-23 this past season uh, to the consumer market. Uh, an additional product will be launched this year uh, that's more specific to, to uh, women-specific skiing. Um, because certainly when you talk about knee injuries, women are two to three times more likely to injure their knee than men in skiing. And that has to do with the, the difference in the anatomy of women to men, in particular, the, the width of the hips and, and how that angle is evoked from the hip to the knee can expose women to a greater risk. So we knew that it was important to, to, to move the development phase of this, if not start it, be in its next phase with, with a women-specific product. So it's the SLR protector, has a little bit easier step-out forces to the binding uh, and, and some ability for the binding to be a little lighter and a little bit smaller in the heel piece. Um, but the development... You know, the, the, there's there's been, I mean, there, there's been studies since skiing has existed, yeah, yeah. and and how certain parts of the body, in particular the knee, are affected by skiing. So, you know, the studies have gone on for decades and decades. The 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 technology to produce this protector, yes, it was, I would say, started about five to six years prior to. Uh, the launch of it in, in 22, 23 in the actual mechanisms 
and the patents created on how to get to this release point. So it's it's been a, a big project for us. Um, and you know, it, I I'm involved in in all things Alpine with our company, and and you know, when you go and you visit where our engineers are and where the design work is going on, Tyrolia is really like no other facility that we have, and the the level of of technical competence and and um, and the ability for our engineers to not only design these products, but they also design the the machines that build the products and they, they build the parts. And then we, we ship those parts to our uh, assembly facility and our engineers design the machines that assemble them as well. So the, the level of know-how that goes into Tyrolia, whether you're talking about our, our junior bindings or our highest level with the protector series, it really is, it's staggering as a skier and somebody that's involved, been involved in skiing my entire life it's the most impressive aspect of our business. It really is truly remarkable how detailed and how much engineering has to go into these products to, to make you and I as, as performance driven while being safe, as safe as possible on the product as we can. Uh, for instance, a, 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 an Alpine race binding, you look at the binding, the toe and the heel, it's made up of over 190 parts. We build all of those parts at Tyrolia other than the screw a metal rod and a spring that's used in the binding. Every other part is built by our engineers and by our production and assembled in our assembly facility. So it's it's a it's a really remarkable um, place, and 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 the the thought presses that that go on there are, are truly remarkable. Hmm. It's you you can you can be a, a tech nerd for weeks visiting that place, yeah, and and not be fulfilled. It's 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 incredible. It's incredible. So let's talk a bit. You, you just talked about one development that's pretty intriguing, the, the a kind of women-specific binding. But can you talk a bit about, I guess you answered the question. The first question was, will we continue to see evolutions of specific products, specific bindings, right? I mean, we've already talked. There yeah. are current, currently three on the market at the moment. Yeah. And 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 most specifically, the uh, two of the bindings, the two unisex bindings, the power rail protector and the attack protector, are the same heel pieces but with different toe pieces. Our, our RX toe uh, on the normal PR protector thirteen and eleven. Um, that binding, the toe piece can, can do a full 180 degree release spectrum. And then we have an attack version of that as well. Um, and, and that attack version, uh, right now is, is, is a little bit more rental looking in its orientation. There's a track under the toe piece and then there's the track on the heel piece, which a lot of retail bindings today from ourselves as well as other manufacturers have, but we will advance that protector, uh, attack version moving forward, giving you a little insight into 2425. You'll see that binding change up a little bit in 2425. Uh, we have the SLR protector, which is, if you look at it, is it a different heel piece. It's a smaller heel piece. It's a lighter heel piece. Um, it doesn't have to hit the same uh, release spectrum going up to a 13 as the normal 
unisex version does so we can make the housing a little bit smaller and use lighter spring tensions in it uh, and make the the overall binding a little bit lighter and especially have a little lighter step out force the amount of force you need to release the binding and for you to step out so from a convenience factor we wanted to do that on the women's specific slr binding and i really shouldn't even say women's specific because we do sell it with plates and a lightweight man or a junior skier could easily use this binding as well. Um, so wait, just the question on that then. So will you be, will it be sort of positioned as a unisex binding for maybe lighter skiers or will it be positioned as a women's specific? I mean, now we're into straight marketing talk, right? Well, but it's, it's, yeah, it, it depends on what, what products you're looking gotcha. at. So if you're looking at it, are joy women specific schemes, yeah. then that is a women specific protector binding. If you want to buy the, uh, the SLR 11 a la carte, yep. which you can, yep. uh, then anyone can use there it. There you go. Yeah. You know, and, and, and if you are somebody that's focused on a lighter weight binding, then that SLR will fit perfectly for you. Um, if you want to have a more, uh, robust retention, uh, then you can go to the, the 13 and use our power rail version. Um, so, and, and if you're more in the free ride game, you can use the attack toe, especially if you're familiar with that. And like I said, not to give too much away, but in 24, 25 will vary the look and the structure of the attack protector in 24, 25. And then that's not to say that we're, we're not, we're looking at how this can affect things in, in various ways. You know, our, as, as we talked a little bit before we, we got on the call, um, you know, our, our freestyle athletes are interested in this. Our free ride athletes are interested in this. Our race athletes are interested in this technology. How can it be positioned in the really pushing the envelope where those skiers are, are pushing what we know is the normal bounds of existence and in, in skiing. Um, and, and that is, is something that we're looking at as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's also uh, binding technology, binding and plate technology that I know that companies are coming together, binding manufacturers and plate manufacturers are coming together as a whole and looking at how we can make racing in particular more friendly towards the lower body and knee injuries and lower leg injuries. So, you know, there's the, no one ever in the ski industry rests on their laurels and no one's ever going to say this is as safe as we can make skiing. We're always going to look to it. I mean, you look at the back protectors that the athletes are using in downhill and super G and the advancement of those airbag technologies and the back protectors. We're constantly looking, you know, when I raced as a junior racer, the, the netting and the fences that we were using <laughs> compared Barbed to wire. what's going on today, or, 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 or talk to a guy like, like Franz Klammer, you know, the, the, the properties of a hay bale at 60 <laughs> degrees are very different than the properties of a hay bale at, at, at sub-zero temperatures, uh -huh. um, you know, and that was their safety level huh. back when, when, when Klammer was, was you know, nuking down downhill runs in a way no one had ever seen before. So, you know, that these, these technologies will, will, they will um, change and they will evolve. And, and hopefully we can use this first edition of protector to evolve and, and make people safer and, and many different facets of skiing in the future. Well, Andrew, so for anybody out there listening to this, who is intrigued, what are the options for 
getting on and trying a protector binding you know for the upcoming season or or now for people listening to this yeah. who are in the in the southern hemisphere yeah it's a, it's a, a great question with with the way that the protector binding is is currently designed it is based off of our power rail system which is a rail that fixes to the ski um you can get that ski through our skis but you can also mount that rail system on just about any flat ski on the market as well um and the nice aspect about that rail system is there's length adjustment built into the binding, whether it's a retail binding or not. Um, so all of our protector bindings currently are retail and rental demo suitable. So ski shops have the ability to bring protector into their demo fleets and you can ski on a, a demo protector binding with various uh, skis affiliated to it um, and go ahead and, and try the, the product for yourself before you purchase it. Um, you know, ideally you're not testing the release <laughs> aspect of it. You're staying in the binding, but um, what's really remarkable to me. And, and I think you'll find other people that have done, you know, we do side-by-side -side testings constantly um, when we're, when we're doing product development and you can feel a difference in the way that the protector binding skis compared to a, a standard Alpine binding. And that for me is really exciting to feel that difference in, in performance and vibration absorption in particular, and, and anything that can make a smoother, uh, feel on skis usually will allow you to become more efficient on your skis, enjoy your day long, uh, longer and, and really conserve your, your strength. You know, the more vibration that you bring into the lower legs, um, the more fatiguing you get. So if we can make that ride a little smoother for you, you'll stay stronger, longer and enjoy your day. I want to let you get going, but before I do, <laughs> You've already referenced your nine knee surgeries, but um, we like to do a segment called Crashes and Close Calls around here on Gear 30. And um, we started doing this when we uh, came out with this injury insurance coverage. People can check this out on the site. It's called Blister Plus. And um, it just, I mean, if you're a skier, chances are you yourself or your community of friends, somebody's constantly getting injured one way or the other doing something. And uh, so we came out with this injury insurance that is, uh, again, if you don't know what we're talking about at this point, we'll include a link. Please check this out. But uh, as part of this, it's uh, we, we started this crashes and close calls segments to just hear some people's stories. And sometimes these stories are gnarly. And sometimes these are stories about how like I was doing nothing gnarly at all and I still got really hurt. So I have a hunch your story is going to fall on the gnarlier end of the spectrum. I don't know. But what do you what do you want to share with us? Well, there, uh, I, as I mentioned, I have a total knee replacement. Um, I had the total knee replacement. I, I wouldn't consider myself young, but in the scheme of total knee replacements, yeah. I, I was officially the youngest my surgeon had ever done at 47, 48 when I got it done. Um, and that all, so that took place in 2018, but stemmed from an injury that I had in 2006, um, back at a time when I wasn't the brightest guy in the world. And I was solely focused on retention and I was skiing on a particular, uh, AT backcountry frame binding, um, you know, that have, they're still out there. We still make them in Tyrolia, but they've gone a little bit to the way of the dinosaur. Um, and this particular binding, I, I 
I pinned the, the DIN settings. So I took the, the DINs to the max. My focus was to not release, but to stay retained. Um, in skiing a, a backcountry shelf and then hitting eh, maybe close to a 20-foot air, but having exceptional an air that I had skied many, many times, um, you know, it, knew it like the, the back of my hand. But in skiing halfway down the shelf, ran into better snow conditions than I had uh, originally accounted for. So I took the start of my air further up the mountain and exceeded my speed to normally to what I normally would. And when I landed, the snow had sloughed out in the landing a little bit. So the landing was a little bit faster than I had uh, bargained for, which got me a little behind on the tail of my skis. If there was a photographer there when the event actually happened, I would imagine I would have been in the dynamic snowplow position. But essentially, uh, as I got further back, my, my right ski hit something underneath the snow. It knocked my knee in. And mentally, I had already blown my left knee about five years prior to this. So I knew what it felt like. And when my knee knocked to the inside in that dynamic snowplow position, I felt it pop. And so I went, oh, I'm pretty sure I just blew my knee. In doing that and losing track of what was physically going on with me, I then proceeded to start cartwheeling. And I cartwheeled about five times in the first three cartwheels. Every time my feet came back underneath me, I could feel my femur slam into my tibia plateau. Literally feeling like I was breaking my leg as I was falling. Um, So when I stopped uh, and I, I stopped in the snow, I said, I'm pretty sure I just blew my knee and I kind of think I might have broken my leg. Turns out that I did it. I did fracture my tibia plateau, but in a in a very small way, um, so that they could use a natural healing response on that. But I had to have significant uh, uh, ligament uh, surgery on it, um, and most importantly, that slamming into the of the femur into the tibia plateau did significant soft tissue damage, which is extremely hard to come back from, um, to the point that I did so much lateral meniscus damage, um, that all I did for the next, uh, 12 years was have two year follow-up surgeries to remove a little more meniscus and usually chiclet sized pieces of bone fragments that I was shearing off because that you pinch that lateral compartment every time you make a turn. Um, so yeah, it wasn't wasn't the best situation, and and I came out of my uh, surgery in 2006, and my surgeon, who's been my surgeon for way too long, uh, I know him way too well. Uh, uh, you, you should never yeah. want to know a surgeon this well. Um, he said in 2006, he said, "I can't fix it. I can only buy you time. You're going to need a knee replacement." If you stop skiing now, you might not need a knee replacement until you're 60. But if you keep skiing, it's going to be earlier than that. And obviously, at around 48 years old, I I was able to buy about 12 years. But before I had the knee replacement, I was in chronic, chronic pain as somebody that whose career is in skiing. And I couldn't stop skiing. So, oh, my God. Okay. And and I was by myself and it was in the backcountry. So two things that you should never do. but. A lot of people do, and I was one of them. So how'd you get out that day? I skied on one leg. Oh, my God. Yeah. Are you... It, it wasn't tremendously far. It was, it was more an area called Eastvale. Okay. Um, 
So, so you know, hike to area from the resort yeah. and it t- takes you about 25 minutes to a half an hour to get back into the back to an area where you have vehicle transportation. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So when you were talking about the chronic pain, was that kind of part of everyday life or was that like more like when you were out skiing again? It, it's, it started specific to ski movements. Yeah. Um, but by the time that I had the, the total knee replacement, um, it had gotten to everyday movements going up and down stairs. I knew it was an issue when the, my outside of skiing, my favorite thing to do is ride a bike mountain yeah. or, or a road bike. And when I could feel it in the process of, of a full rotation on a pedal, then I knew I was in trouble, but it, it was, it was really difficult from a skiing standpoint because I needed to continue to ski to test product, to ski with dealers, to ski with our engineers and, and it was it was inhibiting my ability to do that significantly. You know, people would follow behind me and every turn I made on my right leg, they would see my my head jerk because it was literally like getting stabbed in the side of the knee every time I put pressure on that lateral compartment. So not not the not the best situation, but I, I have to say that total knee replacements are truly amazing. And um, it, it has given me a second lease on my skiing life. Well, just a couple things on this, because we like to just help people understand, like with this Blister Plus coverage. So a couple things. It provides $25,000 worth of coverage toward. So like on that day, if you were in a situation where you needed, I mean, you did need, but that would have gone toward covering um, backcountry evacuation costs mm-hmm. if there was a helicopter evac that was called for i mean which again it kind of was but you you got out on your own so the coverage would be good for that and it would be good for that anywhere in the world um that's huge it, you, you can be a citizen of any country so it, it's worldwide coverage for anybody in the world and then i mean in your case it was clear you were going to a hospital but you know we have a lot of cases that we've heard from people where it's that borderline case or like maybe i actually got knocked out but i recovered and i don't want to pay to go to an er room to get checked out because of the cost you're covered there and like in your case you would have been covered for $25,000 of coverage or if you had insurance in that situation it would have covered the cost of your deductible to then let your insurance kick in. So I don't know, man, this stuff happens enough, maybe not to the level you just described, but it ha- things happen when we're out there skiing or mountain biking or whatever. And like, we just want, we've had too many friends and our, and our own selves have to spend, we get messed up and then we have like the insult to injury, then it's real expensive too. And we're just trying to yeah. help people not be in that situation. So um, <laughs> no, it's, it's a, that's a great program. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many events I've been to, to try and raise funds for people that right. are in a disadvantage, uh, for being able to pay for their medical care. Yeah. So to, to offer another easy, accessible, um, form of insurance is great. Anyway, man, appreciate you sharing your story and Jesus. Yeah. I'm, and I'm stoked to hear that the, the knee replacement is improved, uh, the quality of your yeah. life and, and, um, but yeah, you're too. Most people that see me ski now have no idea. If they don't know my background, they would have no conception that I have a total knee replacement. Oh. 
Wow. It's great. Hey, um, I appreciate you sharing all these stories and the information. I think the binding is really intriguing and, um, you know, we've used it, we've been using it and we'll be talking a bit about it more on blister. Um, but, uh, I think it's always significant when we have new developments in, in the ski world in terms of ski equipment and something like this, um, it's another option for people to check out and to strongly consider. And I think that's a really good thing. And, and I really appreciate you talking a bit more about Tyrolia's development process on this and, and what they're doing too. I, a lot of good information in this. So appreciate you sharing it. Yeah. The, the only other thing that I, I probably neglected to say that I would add to it, um, is that at the point of release, and, and this is really what the technology boils down to, at the point of release, the protector binding can reduce the strain on your knee by over 50%. And that, that's what I'll leave you with. That's, that's the take home. And, and it, 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 it's not going to say that you can't injure your knee, but to reduce the, the, the strain by that much is, is a good step in the right direction, we feel. So thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it. Okay. And, uh, thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. All right. Well, it is now 10 PM Thursday, June 8th, and it's time for our weekly, what we're celebrating segment. And I have in my hand a lovely little dram of Bowmore 18 year old scotch which was very, very generously gifted to me by Blister member and my friend David Handler. He sent this because he'd heard me saying enough about how I'm not really into PD scotch. And so he sent this Bowmore to me saying, give this a shot, check it out. He actually sent this to me. We hopped on a video call together and he kind of walked me through it. And the big key with this one, he said, you got to have this one with just a little bit of water. And I was like, I can do that. I can add water because, you know, Matt Manzer bothered to finally send me that whiskey spoon. So I went over, I got my whiskey spoon from Matt. We added a little water to this Bowmore 18-year-old scotch and it's delightful. So David, thank you for the generous gift. Maybe you know, maybe just with scotch and peaty scotch in particular, sometimes you just, just add water, right? Just like a lot of things in life, just add water. So anyway, that's what's in my hand. And what I'm going to celebrate, in addition to David's generosity, we've got two birthdays around here. First of all, our very own, the strikingly handsome Justin Bob just had a birthday yesterday. Uh, J-Bob is currently out in the Pacific Northwest. So, J-Bob, I'm sorry that we didn't get to spend this day together. Let's link up soon. But we're celebrating you, J-Bob, because you're the best. You make Gear 30 go, and you do a whole lot of other things around here. So, we are incredibly grateful for you. And most of all, I'm grateful to be able to call you my good friend and to be able to call you that for all these years, man. It's been been a minute. But that's not all, folks. This Saturday, it's also Sasha Anastas's birthday. And in Sasha's case, I will actually be able to spend the day with her 
in addition to, it seems like, I don't know, 3,000 of her other closest friends. Uh, I think this is going to be a heck of a party. Um, but that's this weekend. Sasha, looking forward to coming and seeing you and Simon and the whole rest of your clan. And um, here's to you. You might not be the strikingly handsome Justin Bob, but you are, as I'm on record of saying, my favorite person in the world to ski with. So there's that. It's just so There's so much goodness out here between J-Bob and Sasha. So we love you both. I raise my glass to you both. Cheers. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Gear 30. I want to say thanks so much to Andrew for the really interesting and informative conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And seriously, thanks to all of you for listening and for your interest in this high level and your interest in things like high level conversations about technology and safety gear and the like. Um, We don't really dumb things down around here. And we've got many thousands of you listening each week to conversations like this. And, you know, there's enough stupid stuff out there in the world that uh, it kind of restores my faith in humanity that there are, you know, turns out millions and millions of smart thinking people out there. And it's sure true that we've got a whole lot of them listening to this conversation and that are members of our Blister community. So thanks to all of you. I feel heartened and encouraged. So that's it for this week. Thanks, everybody. I hope you have a great weekend, and we will talk to you real soon.